We'll hear argument now in number 891717, Florida versus Terrence Bostick. Ms. Fowler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Terrence Bostick was reclining on the rearmost seat in a Greyhound bus when he was approached by Officer Nutt. Officer Nutt spoke to Mr. Bostick in a conversational tone. He, he asked Mr. Bostick where he was traveling to. Mr. Bostick replied that he was going to Atlanta. Um, Mr. Nutt asked Mr. Bostick for his identification and for his, his bus ticket. Those were um, reviewed by the officer and quickly returned to Mr. Bostick. Mr. Bostick was then asked if he would be willing to cooperate with the police by allowing a search of his bag. Mr. Bostick agreed to the consent, uh, excuse me, consented to a search of the red bag upon which he was reclining. As it turned out, that bag did not belong to him. It did not reveal any contraband. There was a blue suit bag in the overhead rack above Mr. Bostick. When Mr. Bostick was asked whether or not it was his bag, he said that it was. He was asked again whether or not he would consent to the search, and he consented to the search of that bag, which revealed over 400 grams of cocaine. Mr. Bostick was subsequently arrested. It's the position of... What they uh, were looking for, what their mission was? It is unclear from this record as to um, whether or not they went through what is usually gone through, which is saying that we have dr a drug problem in South Florida. It's very serious. We are asking the cooperation of citizens. It is not clear from the hearing on the motion to suppress in this case if that was um, was and, uh, to Mr. Is it also unclear whether they told uh, t told the person that uh, he need not consent? Officer Nutt told Mr. Bostic at the time that he requested the consent for the blue bag, for the search of the blue bag, that he had the right to refuse. Uh, is that clear or is that disputed? Um, I don't believe that's a dispute, Your Honor. So we may judge this case on the basis that he was told he had the right to, to, uh, to uh, refuse. Right to refuse the search. He was not told that he had a right not to um, talk with the officers. Yes, all right. But the, the encounter between Mr. But he could have... Uh, you think it's clear enough that we judge the case on the basis that he was told that he could refuse the search? Yes, absolutely. Um, these officers were wearing plain clothes covered with a windbreaker, which had a sheriff's department insignia on the um, shoulders. It also said sheriff's department on, across the back. Um, other than that, they were wearing normal clothing, as any other citizen would, would do. Officer Rubino had his firearm in the waistband of his pants. It was not readily visible. Officer Nutt had his gun in a pouch, which was held in his hand. We do not know exactly where that pouch was at any given time during this encounter. Mr. Bostick, um, since he was in the rearmost seat of the bus, um, Officer Nutt and Officer Rubino were in the seats in front of him, sort of half in and half out of the aisle. There was still sufficient room for Mr. Bostick to have gotten up and left the bus had he so chosen, but the state would urge that that is not the test. And then the bus would go off. Yeah, that's correct. That's possible that that would happen. But I believe that a more correct test under these circumstances is whether or not Mr. Bostick was free to terminate the encounter, whether or not he could have merely told the officers that he was not interested in talking to them. If he had done so, that would have been the end of, end of um, the matter, and the officers would have gone on either to other passengers or gotten off the bus if they did not get any cooperation from any other passengers. Um, does that beg the question? Because you say he could have ended the encounter. 
he could have ended the conversation to the extent that it was a two-way conversation. Uh, but the question is whether there is a detention. And the police officer would still be there, and unless he wanted to get off the bus and be left behind, he would still be there. So isn't the question not whether an encounter could be, in the sense of a conversation, could be ended, but whether, a, whether there was a detention and whether that could be ended? Justice Souter, I think the answer to that question is that um, it is whether or not there is a restraint of Mr. Bostic's liberty so as to rise to the level of a seizure. In this and and that, that isn't the, the answer to that question is, is not synonymous with the answer to the question whether the conversation, uh, the verbal interaction between them could have been ended, is it? If, if the verbal conversation had ended, the officers would have moved on. If they had not moved on, then there, if Mr. Bostic had said, Officer Nutt, I do not want to talk to you, I want to go to sleep, and then Officer Nutt had gone further, then that probably would have given rise to a seizure. But if he had said no and the officers had moved on, that, that is what we assume. Well, yes, if. I mean, that's the assumption that we've got to make uh, for your argument to work, isn't it? Yes. And, and we don't have anything to go on but assumption, do we? we? We have, I believe, the officer's testimony, which is that he would have moved on. Why do you say it would have been a seizure if the officer continued to, to question him? I mean, let's assume I'm walking down the street and an officer comes up to me and just walks alongside and he starts asking me questions. And I say, officer, you know, I'd really rather not talk to you. And he just keeps walking alongside and keeps asking me questions and I don't answer. I have been seized? At some point, that may have given rise to a seizure. It depends upon the totality of the circumstances. I mean, I can see how I, maybe, you know, he'd be guilty of harassment or something, but, but how is it a seizure? He just talks to me when I don't want to be talked to. A lot of people do that to me sometimes. I never think that... <laughs> I, think I never think I've been seized. I really no, it depends, it depends upon the nature of the encounter and the totality of the circumstances. If you had turned around to an officer and said, you know, leave me alone, I, you know, absolutely, I do not want to talk to you. And he says, I don't want to leave you alone. He just keeps walking alongside you, but he's not stopping me. He just keeps, if you're keeps free, talking if, in my ear. If you're free to go about your business, you haven't been seized. And in this case, Mr. Bostic... I mean, I've been annoyed, but I haven't been seized. Right. And in this case, Mr. Bostick's business was staying on his bus and going to his final destination. So the que question here is whether or not the officers prevented him from doing exactly that. And all he had to do was literally say no to the officers. And, he, and if he had said no, then that would have been the end of the encounter. How do we know that? How does he know what would have happened at the next bus stop? We don't know for certain what would happen, but we can only, we can only assume would the fact that he said no in Fort Lauderdale give probable, reasonable suspicion to an officer in Palm Beach to say, I'd like to ask you the same questions you were? You were I don't saying? believe so, Your Honor. I think that it's, to it's an isolated incident. What There's no communication between different branches of the, uh, the different uh, police departments? There's nothing in this record, and there's nothing in my not. I thought one of the opinions referred to something like that. There is um, some language in one of the D.C. opinions that says that the officer had said that, but the opinion... Um, also goes on to say that they treat that as irrelevant, what the subjective thoughts of the officer were. They do, they do not um, use that as part of their holding. And in this case, we need to decide what a reasonable person in Mr. Bostick's circumstances would have thought when two people in plain clothes came, actually as one person came up to talk to him, the other officer was further up in the bus. Have we ever said in our cases that the exercise of your rights is grounds for uh, additional suspicion on the part of officers? No, we have not. Pardon me. No, you have not. It's, this court has not so held. And we are not saying that here today. What we are saying is 
that — Well, uh, you're not because you responded to Justice Stevens, so that this would not be grounds for giving added suspicion to either these police or to police in another jurisdiction. So I, I think that's consistent with your answer. Yes, sir. Would it be consistent with your position for the police to call ahead to the next city where the bus comes in and suggest to them that without basing any reasonable suspicion that they just reinterrogate the same person? Would there be anything wrong with that? I'm not sure that they would have a basis for doing that. Well, the fact that he, unlike so many of thousands of people who are willing to let their bags be searched, unlike so many, he just wouldn't let them be search his bag. I gather from the history of this is most people are willing to allow their bags to be searched. Right. What we've learned is that most people feel a more moral compulsion to cooperate with police officers, especially when they are informed about the problems that we have with drugs. Um, I do, I, problems they're not aware of until the officers confronted them on the bus. Or they may well be aware of them because it's all over the media. It's all over, you know, people have, um, pe they know of people in the community that have problems. I mean, it's common knowledge that drugs are a very serious problem in this country. So I don't think that most people, when they're approached by officers, that's the first time they've heard about a drug problem, but that might give rise to why they're more likely to cooperate. I really can't give you a yes or no answer as to whether or not Going, um, whether or not calling ahead would, would um, be proper. Why would it? Um, are you urging a, a, a no harm in asking rule? I mean, what, do, do you need probable cause or anything just to come up and say, do you mind if I search your bag? No, you don't need probable cause. So then why would That's there, merely a citizen encounter. Why would there be any question about calling ahead? If you say that there's no violation of the law involved in simply asking somebody. Right. I just, I have a concern that if you do this, you know, 25 times, that might be a problem. And that, that well, question that could is be, not... that could be police harassment, but, but it has nothing to do with whether it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, I, I would assume. Okay. I mean, Correct. consistently with the rest of your case. Correct. Thank you, Your Honor. What we need to look here is to whether or not the actions of the officers, the totality of their actions, were reasonable and whether or not they caused restraint of liberty on Mr. of Mr. Bostick. Florida asserts that there was no restraint of his liberty. There was no show of force. There was no display of a weapon. Um, there was no display of authority. And under was there the any showing that the bus departure was delayed? In the bus driver's deposition, he s stated that they left 20 minutes late. However, it's unclear as to whether that was a direct result of Mr. Bostick's arrest. Uh, suppose the police did delay the bus <coughs> 20 minutes in order to uh, conduct this sort of investigation. Would that have any bearing on the case, or would it change the case? I don't think it would. I think that that, is, that would be between the bus company and the police officers as long as... Suppose the police delay a bus for an hour and a half. That has nothing to do with whether there's a seizure? I think... You have to look to what they are doing with each individual person on the bus. Well, suppose they're conducting this investigation that was conducted here, but it took them an hour and a half. And they asked the bus to please cooperate, the driver to please cooperate by waiting until they got there, and they took their time to get there. They delay it for an hour and a half for this investigation. Are you saying this investigation with Mr. Bostick alone or with everyone on the bus? Well, it's the same facts as you have here. <laughs> I think that that is a factor that should be considered, but it does not necessarily give rise to a seizure. What we are saying here, and we are saying the 
Supreme Court of Florida has erred is in not considering the totality of the circumstances. Well, so supposing, uh, Ms. Fowler, that the bus has an accident on the highway between Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach, and the sheriff comes and says, I want to investigate the accident, please hold up the bus for an hour while we... Yeah, I want to interview the driver. I want to take some photographs. Do you think the people on the bus are seized because of that? No, because that's regular police business. I don't think there's any problem at all with that. And I'm not saying that they were seized on, under the <laughs> other scenario. I'm saying it's a factor to be considered. And if there's an accident, clearly the police are within their rights to do their, whatever investigation is required. Ms. Fowler, backing up a little, why did they go straight to the back of the bus? Uh, what we have learned from the officers is that they try to approach as many people on the bus as they can within the time allotted to well, them. So it's easy. Why didn't they start in the front? It's, their practice is to start in the back because then when they get to the front, they can exit. They the, had the some vehicle. reason, didn't they? Pardon me? Wouldn't it appear that they had a reason to start the back instead of the front? I think that the reason, the only reason that I have been given is that it is just their standard practice because they do exit the vehicle when they get to the front of the bus, otherwise they go to the front, to the back, and then have to leave again. Also, um, there's evidence, not in this record, um, but in other cases that police, that drug dealers prefer to be in the back of the bus because they have more, um, they're more con concealed. How do, you, that's something how do you know what the drug dealers do? That's something that police officers have told me, but that is not clear in this record. And uh, it's always interesting to me that all of the drug pushers, when you ask them to search them, they say, oh, come on. Well, it's not usual. People don't do that. Why is it that I the guys that plead guilty, why do drug pushers plead guilty? Because they are guilty. Hmm? If you're asking why they plead guilty after they've been after no, no, I mean, well, when they arrest? When I've got dope on me and I say, search me, am I not pleading guilty? You're cooperating with the police officer. That's right. Why? Can you give me a reason why? I think a reasonable person would do it. They're just Because good they're trying to be cooperative. And they're I just good people? Yes. Yes, that's the reasonable dope dealer we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but the test that we need to be looking at is that of a reasonable citizen. What would a reasonable citizen... But as Justice Marshall points out, the case is always there are people who, who were not reasonable citizens. May I just ask on the standard practice, is it standard practice to search as many bags as possible during the stop at the... It's standard practice to approach as many people and request consent for the search of the bags as possible. I see. How many did they search... On this bag, they never, on this, excuse me, on this bus, they never got past Mr. Bostick because once they arrested him, it was time for the bus to move on. I think, Justice Marshall, in, in response to your question, I'm sure there are a lot of drug dealers who do say no, and we just never see those cases. So it's not, it's not as if every drug dealer is saying, is agreeing to this for some reason. If there are no further questions... They may not be a very bright bunch of people, perhaps. That's, that's probably very true. Which is a good thing, I suppose. <laughs> yes. I'd like to save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Ms. Fowler. General Starr, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The drug interdiction procedure that is at issue here is a natural outgrowth of airline interdiction programs, airport interdiction programs, that this Court has had before it in several cases. 
in Mendenhall and Florida against Royer and in Florida against uh, Rodriguez. As law enforcement efforts at airports have borne fruit, not surprisingly, drugs have been transported in the experience of law enforcement officials in other ways, including by trains and by bus. This tool, which was employed in Broward County, is a tool that is employed increasingly across the country. It is used here in the District of Columbia and in other jurisdictions. It is carried out in a reasonable and professional and non-intimidating way. General Starr, would you comment and view that argument on the statement in the brief amicus for the Americans for Effective Law Enforcement, Professor Inbaugh's group, which has uniformly supported the government in all these cases, says amicus with more than 16 years of experience in police training and education view the confrontation and search procedure used here as highly unusual, if not unique. you think he's wrong? It is only unusual in the sense that it is relatively new. Broward County began implementing this in the early 1980s. Uh, this jurisdiction began implementing it three years ago. All federal courts of appeals that have now been confronted with the legality of this have unanimously sustained it. No dissents, whatever. The Fourth Circuit's opinion in Flowers, in particular speaking, the Fourth Circuit speaking through Judge Wilkinson, made, I think, a pivotal point. This program is not only valuable in assuring the interdiction of drugs, but it's also valuable in terms of depriving individuals of dangerous weapons. That is one aspect of this program, and the results in Broward County are quite consistent with those in the District of Columbia and elsewhere. Not only are drugs seized, but weapons are seized as well. Forty-five dangerous weapons were seized by Broward County in the space of a year and a half. In terms of the procedures that are employed, no, I don't think that they are intimidating, and I think that for this reason. All these police officers engaged in this program are trained. They have read this court's cases. They know that they cannot be confrontational. They know they cannot demand cooperation. They know, however, under this court's cases, they can go to a citizen and ask for that citizen's cooperation. General Starr. Yes. If there had been a shooting match on that bus, there'd been a whole lot of people killed, wouldn't there? There certainly might have been. And who would have been responsible for it? Those who began the firing. I would think, Justice Marshall, let me give you this assurance. Not only is this record barren of any indication of such a problem, it is our experience that there is no such problem. There have been no such incidents, to our knowledge, of shootouts on buses. Individuals cooperate. And why do they cooperate? This court, by the way, has, in Schneckloth and in Mendenhall and in Delgado, said it's irrelevant whether you have been told whether you are free to cooperate or not. The point is, this is a free society. You have the right to say no. This court has had cases before in which individuals have asserted that right. They have said no. Brown against Texas. The, the police officers come to the individual, and he says, I'm not going to cooperate. At that point, the police officers in this program are trained to back off. Whether they must, in response to Justice Scalia's question, is a different matter in terms of Fourth Amendment analysis, because the critical Fourth Amendment inquiry is whether, as General Fowler put it, under the totality of the circumstances, there has been, what, a show of force, a display of force or a show of authority so as to restrain 
the individual. I have no problem at all with the concept that Justice Souter suggested of detention. The police officers station themselves in this kind of encounter so that there is no detention. The person is physically free to get up and absent himself, not necessarily General Starr is the cramped setting of a bus that is about to leave a factor to be considered in the totality of the circumstances? Yes, it is, Justice O'Connor. But because of the cramped setting, law enforcement officers are trained not to block the individual's right of access to the aisle or wherever the individual wants to go. The individual need not leave the bus. The individual can simply say no and remain precisely where he is, or he can simply move to another seat. He can vote with his feet, but he does not have to take the extraordinary action. Question whether he's, whether the, question whether he can leave, whether or not he, If I may, I don't think that question is presented in this case, because as I read this record, Florida has not preserved that point. Has not preserved the point whether there is, in fact, a diminution of the taint so that this is not fruit of the poisonous tree. By this show of authority, when he consented. I think in the ordinary case that would be presented. The way this case has come narrowly to the court is whether the very act of approaching a citizen on a bus and asking for the individual's identification, bus ticket, and the like constitutes a seizure. Because Florida, I think it's... Rather than whether that constitutes uh, such uh, uh, a threat that his uh, consent should be held invalid. I thought the holding was that the consent was invalid. By virtue of what the Florida Supreme Court has determined erroneously in our judgment to have been an illegal seizure, we believe there was not a Fourth Amendment event here by virtue of the cooperation of this individual. Consent was invalid because it was a product of an illegal seizure. That That was the theory of the Florida Supreme Court. And what Florida has presented to this court in the question presented is the proposition that there was no seizure here. And we think that's exactly right, as three courts of appeals have now unanimously concluded. General Starr, if I understand your argument, you think it's irrelevant to this Mm -hmm. case that uh, Officer... Well, not irrelevant, but unnecessary, at least, to the case that Officer Rubino... uh, uh, advise Mr. Bostick that uh, you have the right to refuse. As far as you're concerned, he didn't have to say that. Absolutely right. This court has said so in Schneckloff v. Bustamante. It said it in Mendenhall, and it said it in Delgado. I think that is settled law. I thank the court. Thank you, General Starr. Mr. Ayer, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, at the outset, I would like to note that uh, there is nothing in the record of this case that indicates anything about the training of the officers or the procedures that they were instructed to follow. Uh, There is material in later cases, uh, indeed cases out of Broward County, uh, indicating in later years, not in 1985 when this case occurred, but in later years following this case and others, uh, that they did in fact adopt certain procedures which included standing behind the seat rather than in front of it, uh, not displaying weapons, 
uh, and a number of other safeguards, which indeed are not present here. So I think it's, it's important, number one, to decide this case on the facts of this case. Uh, and I would like very briefly to review those facts, because I must say my view of them does not in every particular accord with, uh, with what the Court has just heard. Um, briefly, on the morning of August 27th, these two officers boarded this Greyhound bus roughly 8 o'clock or so in the morning. As they got on, the driver got off and went inside, closing the door of the bus behind him. The officers had no suspicion of anyone on the bus that morning. Nonetheless, they both wore raid jackets that had the words Sheriff's Office not only across the back, but across the front uh, of, of the jacket. We haven't heard anything yet today about the gun, uh, not so much as one word, but there was a gun uh, indisputably in the record. Indeed, on page 5 of, of uh, Florida's brief, they concede that the gun in Officer Nutt's hand in a, in a pouch was recognizable as a gun. Uh, and that, I think, is a very critical point. That it, that it Why is that critical? I, uh, it's most, critical? Most police officers I see are, are, are bearing sidearms. I well, it's, don't it, know why. That's so extraordinary. Justice Scalia, it's one thing, I think, to, to have a gun concealed. It's another to choose to display it in a way that brings to mind to the person you're talking to that you are indeed armed and you're prepared to deal with force if necessary. The gun was in a pouch, as I understand it. It was in a pouch, and the testimony is ambiguous. Uh, as to whether or not at some point during the encounter Officer Nutt put his hand into the zippered pouch and put it on the gun. But it, how else would he have carried the gun? Well, I mean, he, he wasn't in uniform, so he didn't have a holster on his side. I, I don't, you usually don't see them when they're wearing these, uh, well, these jackets with, uh, with, you know, with I don't know a Sam Brown belt on it. You, you, can wear, you can wear a shoulder holster. There's a number of ways to do it. Officer Rubino had his gun concealed. Uh, that is to say, not out where it could be seen. Um, so the fact that this gun was there, and, and Bostick's testimony was that the hand was at times inside the zipper on the gun, uh, the testimony of Officer Nutt uh, was not contrary. It was that sometimes he does put his hand on the gun inside the zipper, and he doesn't remember whether on this particular day he did or not. Uh, in any event, as well, I said... Would, would it be objectionable, Mr. Ayer, if, if uh, on a uniformed police with a, a gun and a shoulder holster, a, a side holster... Uh, did the same thing? But, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the point is not that I'm trying to make is not that it is per se objectionable. None of these items are per se objectionable. We're dealing with what a reasonable person concludes from all the circumstances. And, and what I'm trying to do is present the full picture of the circumstances so as to make my argument. You think a reasonable person might have concluded that if he didn't consent, the officer would shoot him? Is that what you're trying to say? No, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a likely conclusion. But I, as I'll, What uh, is a likely conclusion? Well, I think you have to look at, at all the circumstances, and then I'll, I think if I, if I can have a moment, I'll, I'll try to explain how I think they fit together. Um, in any event, the officers did go to the back of the bus. As was indicated, uh, Mr. Bostick was reclining on the last seat on the bus. Um, whether he was asleep or not is disputed, uh, and there are, of course, no fact findings here, so we don't know what the court found. But uh, he was clearly lying down, uh, attempting to get some rest, uh, and was roused either by being touched in the foot, which was his testimony, Mr. Bostick's testimony, uh, or by simply being talked to, which was the officer's testimony. Uh, that occurred at a time when Officer Nutt was standing, uh, I think by the undisputed testimony, half in and half out of the aisle uh, in front of Mr. Bostick. That is to say, half in and half out of an aisle, which is about 15 inches wide, uh, according to a fact-finding in U.S. versus Chandler, 
uh, here in the District of Columbia that is relating to a Greyhound bus. Um, Officer Rubino, it's not quite clear where he was, but he was apparently in the row uh, also directly in front of Mr. Bostic. Uh, so the two of them were confronting uh, Mr. Bostic very directly. And then you had the conversations that took place, um, the officers identifying themselves, not clear what more they said than that. Uh, they asked Mr. Bostic where he was traveling to. He said Atlanta. Uh, they asked to see his ticket and his identification. Uh, he presented them. They were in order and the names matched, so they were given back. Uh, and immediately thereafter, apparently, uh, Mr. Bostic was asked if he would uh, consent to a search of the red bag, which didn't belong to him, and then subsequently uh, would consent to a search of the blue bag, which did. But, but he was told uh, that he need not consent. Well... Again, it depends upon this court's fact-finding uh, on this record. And Officer Nutt does say at page 20 of the joint appendix, uh, on cross-examination, he does not say it on his direct testimony, but on cross-examination, he says uh, that he told him he had a right to refuse consent. Uh, on the other hand, there are several other accounts of the conversation by the officers, uh, and the officers uh, indicate at, in those conversations nothing about that particular wasn't uh, there any finding below? In there is area? no fact-finding, Justice White, whatsoever by the trial court, except the ruling on the motion. Well, in Judge Lett's dissenting opinion in, in the District Court of Appeal, he, he says that uh, there is conflict in the evidence about whether the defendant consented to the search of the second bag and whether he was informed of his right to refuse consent. However, any conflict must be resolved in favor of the state, it being a question of fact decided by the trial judge. Well, I think, I think the, the, certainly on the issue of consent, that's true, because that fact, even though there were no fact findings, uh, that fact was necessarily decided by the trial judge. You would not have any basis for this search absent consent. Therefore, by denying the suppression motion, it is necessarily implicit that there was consent. Now, whether or not uh, the other statement, the, the, the warning or, or whatever, that you have a right not to consent was made, I think, doesn't follow necessarily. Well, wouldn't it be fair to say that the Florida Supreme Court assumed for the sake of argument that, that, that the, he was advised of his right to refuse consent? They did, not, they did not make anything of the contrary. The only point I would make is that they did change the question presented. The question as it was presented by the intermediate Florida court uh, included the premise that um, he had, in fact, been advised. If you look at, uh, at page, page B1 of the, uh, of the oh, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, page B1 of the joint appendix um, and B2, the question is presented there, sa says at the end, has the right, and, and uh, they advise the passenger that he has the right to refuse consent to search. The Florida Supreme Court, for unstated reasons, changed the question presented uh, over on A1 of the, of the, uh, appendix to the petition for certiorari uh, to omit that premise. So it's not at all clear to me that the Florida Supreme Court assumed that that consent... Well, on their given. theory, uh, uh, whether he was advised or not was irrelevant. Well, I, I, don't, I don't seek to make a great deal of whether he was advised or not either, because frankly, I don't think it's terribly important. Um, the issue here is whether Mr. Bostic was seized under the Fourth <laughs> Amendment. Uh, and I would state the legal test roughly as follows, trying to incorporate uh, this court's uh, thinking in uh, a series of cases, Mendenhall and Delgado, but also uh, in the more recent opinion in Inyo versus Broward County. Uh, it seems to me the question is something like this. Um, whether intentional police conduct 
in the setting in which it plainly is occurring, that is, on a, on a bus, communicated to a reasonable person, by which I mean an innocent person, that he is not free to leave the presence of the officer, assuming that he would want to leave the presence of the officer. And I would argue, based on the facts that I've, that I've just reviewed, that a reasonable person here would plainly feel that he had been and was being tempor temporarily detained for the purpose of being questioned by these officers. Well, isn't the fact is the reason he didn't want to leave is he didn't want to get off the bus? Not because he didn't want to talk to the officers, necessarily. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think we know that, uh, Justice Kennedy. I think there's nothing in the record uh, that indicates... Well, the reason we don't know it is because uh, your client didn't exercise his rights. If he had, then we would have found out the answer. Well, if, if, you, if, if, you, assume, if you assume that everyone who is on uh, a bus that is laying over temporarily in an intermediate city... Uh, does not want to get off that bus. I think, as an initial matter, you can probably say, yes, that's right. That is, you don't want to get off because you have a ticket to Atlanta, and we're in Fort Lauderdale, and I don't want to go to Fort Lauderdale. I want to go to Atlanta. That doesn't mean uh, that events can't occur on that bus that can cause you to say, you know, I just assume get off in Fort Lauderdale. I just assume not be here being questioned by Officer so-and-so, and I've changed my mind. I would like to leave. I don't think that this court uh, is in a position or, or would want to make the judgment that because someone had bought a through ticket, that they had lost the right to decide to get off the bus uh, at an intermediate point if indeed they decide that that is what they want to do. And that's why, in stating the test that I've stated, uh, I have put it in terms of the intentional police, police conduct uh, and its effect in the setting on a person assuming the person decides he wants to leave. So I think what you have to look at is uh, the, the overall set of factors that would restrict one, apart from the fact that you generally start with a preference not to get off the bus. Well, now, wait. Oh, not all the factors that would restrict one. I assume when you say that the reasonable person would think he's not free to leave, you mean he's not free to leave because of the assertion of state authority against him. <laughs> Right? Either force or the threat of restraint. That is correct. So the, the mere fact that it's a, it's a lot of trouble to leave, that he'd have to take his baggage out of the baggage compartment of the bus, that he'd have to chuck away half of his ticket, all of that is irrelevant to whether he thought that, that force was being applied to get him, uh, against him to, to prevent his leaving. You acknowledge that we, those circumstances are irrelevant. They are irrelevant to the question of whether he's free to leave. Uh, nonetheless... Uh, well, let me come back to the question of whether they're relevant at all to the Fourth Amendment issue here. But specifically, uh, the, the confinement that results here, I think, results from three, three different sort of collections of factors. And I, I'd enumerate them as follows. First of all, the obvious physical confinement within the bus. That is to say, the bus itself is a very small area. There are very few ways to move about on a bus. Uh, you don't have just much room to get around. Uh, there is one exit. It is at the front of the bus. And in this case, the officer was half in the aisle, which is 15 inches wide. The door to the bus is closed, and there's another officer standing right practically in his face. So you have, number one, these factors of physical confinement. Number two, you have police officers who are making apparent, that is to say they are communicating by their actions, uh, their ability to use force if they need to do it or believe it's appropriate to do it. That is to say, 
They are displaying in a visible form, not to say out of its purse, but nonetheless uh, in a visible form. They're making observers aware that they have a weapon handy if they need it. Um, and they are wearing raid jackets, uh, which I think most people are familiar with from watching television, as, as garments that are worn by law enforcement officers when the officers are most typically engaged in, uh, in arresting people and carrying out somewhat urgent law enforcement activities. Uh, so they've, they've got the garb and the outward dress of readiness for action. That's the second factor. And, and the third, um, which I think may be perhaps the most important of all, uh, is the apparent purposefulness of their behavior by virtue of several specific aspects of what went on. Uh, a couple of them are minor, I think, sounding, but when you put them together, become more significant. The touching on the foot, uh, a sort of an indication, you know, if you spell it out, you may want to rest, but we want to talk to you. Well, what if, what if a person is asleep? Is there some one way, according to you, that the uh, officers could constitutionally get his attention? No, Mr. Chief Justice, I, and I'm not suggesting that touching someone on the foot is, is per se unconstitutional by any means. I'm simply suggesting that it's one of the factors, uh, as, as this course in, court indicated in Mendenhall, a physical touching uh, is one thing that may sometimes indicate uh, or tend to indicate a seizure. So it's one factor. Well, would, would it have been preferable for Fourth Amendment purposes, in your view, if the police had simply... Uh, uh, ad admonished him to wake up in a loud voice? I don't know if it would be, or I think, I think that would raise another of the Mendenhall. Well, then, how, then, in your view, how consistently with the Fourth Amendment should a police officer who wishes to interrogate a sleeping passenger on a bus go about it? Well, I, I, I guess I think that there, if you have no reasonable suspicion uh, of someone and he is asleep, um, you can't. You can't I, I would certainly not say that there's a per se bar on doing it at all. But you you say a lot about things that are not a per se bar, but apparently a lot of things are factored in. But uh, when when we uh, get down to brass tacks on this, I, I get the impression you think there really is no way that they can properly wake him up without having it counted against him in this calculus that you're putting together. Well, I, I, I think that it, it tends to make the encounter feel more like uh, a, a command performance, that is, that one is directed by the police. And if one is directed and one, in fact, has the right to decline, uh, I think there is a bit of a tension there. I think that is something that... But you can't say, would you agree to wake up? And the person, the person can't say no. <laughs> well, I, I think... I, wake I, him up, I'll put it this way. I think certainly if they had tapped him on the foot and they'd said... Um, we have a couple questions we'd like to ask you. You don't have to talk to us, and you're free to leave. Certainly, that would have that would have ended any question whatsoever. I'm not saying that again. That's required, but that would certainly be a way of of addressing that problem. Mr. Uh, Aaron, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. We don't we don't know in this case that he was asleep. No, we don't. We don't know that he was touched on the foot. That's true. We have a, we have a record that is unclear on both those points. We, we, but we have we have him. What are we talking about it for? Well. We're talking about I mean, it's the factor that we don't know existed in this case. So how can we factor it in when we're not sure it was there? The, the court is going to have to make a determination as to what facts it believes occurred in order to decide uh, whether the situation is, is Fourth Amendment violation. We are going to determine whether he was touched on the foot? Not necessarily. Only if you think you have to in order to decide the case. Uh, but, and I would suggest you probably don't. Uh, a second thing that I think... Um, well, two other things I think are worth mentioning with regard to the purposefulness. One is the request for documents, uh, that is to say, uh, 
focusing attention specifically on Mr. Bostic. And, and the most important one, I think, um, has to do really with where this is taking place. I think we in this country are lucky, very lucky, to be able to take for granted some what you could sort of call quasi-public, quasi-private places, uh, places like restaurants, uh, churches, where you, you can't say that they are private in the sense that police officers or other people may never go in there. Uh, of course they can go in there, and you can't object to that. Um, on the other hand, there are places where people typically expect that they are going to be uh, allowed to go about their business unless there is some significant reason uh, for interruption. And what that bears upon is not the notion that it is a per se or any other kind of violation simply to go on a bus. It rather bears upon how a reasonable person would interpret it. If you were sitting in a restaurant uh, and an officer came into the restaurant in uniform, which he obviously would have a perfect right to do, uh, and he came directly to your table uh, and he addressed you and asked you for your driver's license, the assumption that I think most people would make would be that the officer was there uh, in order to carry out some specific, purposeful mission that the officer needed to carry out. Uh, one wouldn't be, I think, necessarily totally pleased because one might have the impression that one had become some sort of a target of inquiry. Um, and I think that same kind of reasoning transfers over here where you're talking about, you know, say a bus uh, or an airplane or a train, uh, a situation where I think most people generally expect that they are not going to be approached uh, if they are going to be approached, I'll put it this way, it's going to be for some reason. Now, that, again, that doesn't mean that the officers can't ever do it. And we don't, I don't argue that. I'm simply arguing now what would a reasonable person conclude from this event occurring. And my suggestion is that a reasonable person would conclude that the, uh, that the officer was about some business, very purposeful business, uh, and the officer in this case both blocking the way out uh, displaying force and an ability to use force communicates a sense of, of an intention to accomplish the mission that he was about, that is to say, to identify the defendant, look at his papers, uh, and then to go about searching his luggage. Uh, why shouldn't we uh, be satisfied, or why shouldn't you be satisfied with our deciding this case on the basis of the facts which the, which the Supreme Court of Florida recited as being the facts of the case? I think that would be fine, Your Honor. I think that would be, uh, that would be quite reasonable. So we don't know uh, whether he, uh, on, on A2, uh, they say the facts in this case are succinctly stated by Judge Letts in his dissenting opinion. Is that good, is that good enough for you? Yes, I think, I, think those are, I think that is a fair statement of uh, the facts that are really quite clear on the record. And so, and so the... Uh, uh, the evidence is disputed about whether the defendant consented or whether he was informed of his right. But the conflict must be resolved in favor of the state. Well, I... I we don't know whether he... Uh, on these facts, you don't know whether they touched the, the man at all. That, that's correct. Under, under this brief statement, we do not. Uh, Mr. Ayer, the problem's even worse than that. As I understand the Supreme Court of Florida opinion... All of those facts were ultimately irrelevant. It answered, it rephrased the certified question, which was very general and contained no, no facts in it. And I gather the basic first ruling was on A1 of your appendix. 
does an impermissible seizure result when police mount a drug search on buses during scheduled stops and question boarded passengers without articulable reasons for doing so, thereby obtaining content to search the pa- uh, consent to search the passenger's luggage. There are no, no details in that at all. I take that to be the basis for the Supreme Court of Florida's holding. Well, I, I, I would, I, I haven't uh, looked into this too far, but I, I would suggest that perhaps it, it, it raises a question to simply ignore the facts of this case, for, for this court to simply decide the case ignoring the facts of this case, simply on the basis of a very brief um, statement of a, of a question certified in the, in the Florida Supreme Court. Well, I gather that it, it was irrelevant to the Florida Supreme Court what the fa- facts were. So long as the situation came within that rephrased question, they well, were going to find for the, uh, for the defendant. I, I, I would not reach that conclusion, Justice Scalia, based on the, what, what follows on page A2, the, the, uh, the discussion uh, quoting directly from, uh, from the dissent in the District Court of Appeals. At the end of the opinion, they refer back again for the, for the very last paragraph. For the foregoing reasons, we answer the certified question as rephrased in the affirmative. They, are, they decided this on the basis of a rule of law that you can't have bus searches. Well, we are certainly not asking this court for a rule of law that you can't have bus searches. It seems, it seems to us perfectly clear that the judgment must be made uh, on the basis of all of the circumstances and uh, the circumstances here, I think, really do break into two categories. There are the peculiar, aggravating circumstances that I think fairly can be said are unmatched in any of the later cases uh, that you find either in the federal courts or the state courts. The, the factors relating to the display of this gun uh, in the pouch, visible and recognizable as a gun, the blocking of the aisle uh, that is halfway in, halfway out of the aisle, the fact that the door to the bus is closed, throughout this encounter. How would a person get off the bus if he wanted to? Uh, those are unique facts here. I think everything I've just said is utterly undisputed on the record. There is no dispute that those are the facts of this case. And on those facts, it seems to me it's very hard uh, to say that there was not a confinement, especially when you look at the second category of facts, which I would describe uh, as the, the generic facts, the generic bus search facts, uh, which I think, frankly, raise very serious problems, uh, questions about whether there is a seizure, but by no means is every bus search without reasonable suspicion going to involve a seizure. Uh, Again, just to repeat, that that generic set of facts includes, uh, as Justice Kennedy noted, uh, it includes the fact that you've got a busload of passengers who basically don't want to get off, and the police are taking advantage of that desire. Maybe they've got their luggage under the bus in the storage. Maybe they've given up their ticket. Maybe they can't afford to stay overnight in Fort Lauderdale. Lots of reasons they don't want to get off, and the police are saying, we have sort of a captive audience. I think that's, that's a problem. But the bigger problem is the fact that people on a bus, like people on an airplane, like people in church, like people in a restaurant, think if an officer comes on board, Uh, or comes into the restaurant and comes up to them and focuses on them and doesn't say, this is just routine, or you don't have to talk to me, or something that contradicts the inference of the situation, something that says, relax, we're not after you, this is just a routine conversation we're having. When you focus in on somebody in those settings, the normal person is going to say, Well, Mr. Ayer, how do you, how do you uh, square your argument with what this court held in the Delgado case, where um, the uh, immigration officers had basically 
uh, closed off the doors to the work area, and the employees were not free to leave, and they were being questioned. Well, uh, seems to me, faced with that case, that you have kind of an uphill battle here. Well, I, I think Delgado is is distinguishable on the ground that the setting is entirely different in the sense of confinement. The bus, obviously, there's simply nowhere to go. There's not there's not a foot or two hardly to move in. Uh, in the factory, the, the, the opinion for the court made clear that there is an opportunity to move around the factory. But they weren't free to leave it, were they? No, but, but I think that the question is, would a reasonable person feel uh, that they were put in a situation where they were detained, that is to say their physical freedom, uh, to move about and to move out of the presence of the officer had been restricted? And I think where you have an entire factory to move around in, uh, it is a far different circumstance than where you simply have nowhere to go at all to get away from the presence of the officer, and you're relying entirely, uh, as, as the other side has argued in their brief is enough, uh, you're relying entirely on the willingness of the officer to walk away from you, because you can't go anywhere. Uh, I, think, I think it is a very, very different circumstance. Mr. Aaron, I thought you said earlier, I thought you, you acknowledged earlier, that it is not the confinement, it is only the confinement by reason of authority. So that the mere fact that you're on a bus or any more than the fact that you're on an elevator doesn't make it an arrest. So to be sure, he may only be able to move three seats away. But so long as he can move three seats away and there's, there's no, no force or, or threat of force that prevents him from moving that distance or further, I don't see why it's an arrest, why it's a seizure. I mean, number one, I don't see how he could move even three seats away here. Uh, but in any event, it, if I understand the argument you're making, Justice Scalia, it would suggest that if there's, a, if there's a building that has, for some reason, a little nook in it that's got three walls, and somebody is leaning against the wall sunning himself, and the nook is only two feet wide, and an officer walks up to him and blocks the way out and says, I want to talk to you. Oh, no, if the officer is blocking the way out, that's, that's uh, restricting his movement by, by force or threat of force. But if, if an officer in an elevator, the, the man standing in an elevator, the officer begins a conversation with him. Now, he can't move very far in the elevator. Has he been seized? I would think he would say no, because it has to be the, the reason he can't move has to be the assertion of authority over him. I, I, I would agree with that. I, I would agree that one would not be seized in that circumstance. I think, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, I think here, where the officers have boarded the bus and they have approached someone who is in the back of the bus uh, and they have acted in a way that they should know, and really must know, communicates uh, a sense of their control, uh, that they have to take responsibility for that, that they can't say, you chose, as is argued, you, you chose to put yourself on the bus. That's point. I'm not questioning that point of your argument. I'm, I'm just questioning the part of your argument that says he couldn't go far. He could only move two or three seats away. That seems to me irrelevant. Well, our argument really is that here he had nowhere to go at all. If we understood uh, the... Uh the uh, Supreme Court of Florida saying that in no case, under no circumstances, may uh, police uh, board a bus and uh, uh, inquire from from, uh, from passengers uh, about their luggage. You don't defend that. You would not defend that rule. Well, my my view is. You say you're not asking for. We're it. not asking for that rule. Furthermore, would you defend it if it, if we understood that to be the ruling? I think that is broader than the rule should be. I, I think, on the other hand, that there well, are... Give me, give me the circumstances under which police may board the bus and uh, ask, uh, ask a customer if, uh, or a passenger, may we search your luggage? 
Well, I, I think if the police... If, if a small person who couldn't block the aisle... Okay, uh, if, if, the poli- if the police go out of their way to negate what I believe to be the normal inference that a person would draw from the rather unusual, to most passengers, occurrence of an officer coming on a bus, that is to say... Well, if they say, you know, for a don't, don't, don't get us wrong, you're quite free to leave the bus. Yeah. Of course, you may not get to Fort Lauderdale, but uh, you're quite free to leave... Well, I, I think they shouldn't say that, but I think if they say you're, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're free to leave, this is routine questioning, you know, we have a real drug problem here and we'd like to talk to you. I think I, my view is that would be acceptable, uh, so long as they do nothing else. And if the, if Florida Supreme Court would not accept that, you would th- you think it's wrong? I think that's going too far, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Ayer. Uh, Ms. Fowler, do you have rebuttal? You have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. I would like to reemphasize the fact that these officers spoke to Mr. Bostic in normal conversational tones. They at no time raised their voices. The gun was not drawn at any time. It was was kept within the pouch. All people in America know the police officers carry weapons. They may not know where they're being holstered. I take it you think that the Florida Supreme Court based its ruling on the particular circumstances of this case, the fact of the gun, the fact of blocking the aisle, Whereas if those facts hadn't been present, they would have had a different view? No, Justice White. I think that you are correct in saying that the Supreme Court of Florida has held... Justice Scalia was... I'm sorry, Justice Scalia. That there was the per se rule that under no circumstances can police go on buses to um, discuss with citizens, to ask their cooperation for a search for any type of contraband. And we are saying here today that that bright line rule... That test should not be the test. Also, we are saying that under the specific facts of Bostick, that there was no show of authority sufficient to restrain his liberty so as to um, implicate the Fourth Amendment. The um, aisle was not blocked. Um, Mr. Bostick's counsel has gotten up here and repeatedly said, said that the aisle was blocked. It was partially blocked. Mr. Boster could still have gotten past. Uh, we, we are a little bit in, in the dark about some of the facts, are we not, Ms. Fowler? Yes, and we are. The, the trial court did not make specific findings. That's correct. We, we would ask that, we, that this court look at those facts that are set forth in the Supreme Court opinion, which is in our petition for cert at A2. Those, which quotes those, from Judge Lett's dissent. Yes. Those, those facts, I think, are sufficient for this court to make a ruling. Um, therefore, we don't have to get into any questions about whether or not he was sleeping, and there's evidence that he was not. Um, just because the, the door to this bus was closed does not mean that the defendant could not have gotten off the bus. It could still be open. There's no evidence that it was locked. That would be a fire hazard or something. Um, would, you, would you know how to open it? My understanding is all you have to do is push it. There's no, there's no specific um, levers or anything like that. It's, it's um, a mere pushing is sufficient. And um, under Delgado, this, this court has found that it's not a test of whether or not that you're free to leave. It's whether or not you're free to go about your business. And Mr. Bostic's business was staying on the bus to continue his travels. And he did not have to talk to these officers if he did not want to. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Fowler. The case is submitted.